to another installment of The Tactile World. Uh, this is a podcast about um, the work of care and especially talking with care workers about their experiences and trying to figure out where care work fits in the contemporary political economy of, of the United States, but really um, this globalizing world in general that we all live in. Um, we are talking to nurses, teachers, social workers, people that would maybe traditionally be thought of as um, doing uh, a type of care work, but our definition of care is pretty broad. So we're gonna be talking to people who do a lot of different types of work and have had a lot of different types of experiences that we might not you know, traditionally think of as falling under the uh, label of care or um, what other scholars have called reproductive labor, emotional labor, and so forth. Um, those are some of the issues we'll be talking about today. Um, we've got a very special guest with us today. I'm Adia Reed. Uh, I'm a student at Georgia State University, and I'm also a multidisciplinary artist, writer, a caretaker, and um, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, we're coming at you from rainy, drainy uh, LA today. It's cold and chilly. Um, how is it where you are in Atlanta? In Atlanta, Georgia, um, we just had a couple days of really nice sort of springtime weather, but um, last night it cooled back down and we're back to clouds. So it's not the brightest day, but it's it's moody and inspirational. Moody and inspirational. I like it. You must be some. You must be the type of person who likes fall and winter. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the aesthetic, um, the aesthetic part of it, at least. <laughs> Absolutely, I totally get that. Where are you from? I uh, grew up in a sort of. I, I grew up in the suburbs of sort of South Atlanta, but I have parents that are immigrants and kind of spent most of their lives going kind of back and forth from here to uh, Costa Rica and Jamaica, where my family is from. So as much as I did grow up in Atlanta, I don't feel as, you know, as grounded as maybe other people do who just have, you know, all their family that's born and raised here. Um, and um, I consider like going home going to Costa Rica, uh, I feel, I, I don't say that I, I won't say that I feel more home when I visit those places. I think I still feel the same amount of sort of alienness, but I definitely feel more home there than here. It, it feels sometimes that I've integrated myself into, you know, American sort of society, uh, I guess by default. So it's, it's a part of me, but I reject it in most ways, I think. Yeah, I can totally um, relate with that feeling of, of alienness, um, no matter where you are, maybe, um, that there's no place that you don't feel alien. So you mentioned the word grounded. What does it mean to feel grounded in a place, do you think? I think I'm hoping it's not a fantasy that I've created for myself, but I, I look at kind of people who've, found you know their home quote unquote or or maybe you know they've lived in their whole they lived the whole their whole life in one house 
like people like that people who can you know say you know my grandparents lived here or you know they built this house or this you know place is like one of the founding you know spaces of my life I don't really have that I basically moved around you know every three four five years for the most part of my life I was moving around and um I kind of moved in the same area so we would kind of move like three miles down the street five miles down the street ten miles down the street um and kind of like I was like switching schools all the time even though in high school I did switch schools every semester for a while oh, uh, wow. it's kind of like I don't know it's something that I'm like cool with it like it's like this nomadic part of me um and my grandfather was a was a technical nomad he didn't have a place he didn't have a house to live in for like the last 20 years of his life he kind of just like walked around the streets of Jamaica and had like the power to just like let like attract people to take care of him um so I don't know my mom my mom moved around a lot I think as well and so like we kind of have this way to adapt to just new places and kind of like these survival tactics to like know how to move to somewhere and like create loose roots in a way right you know kind of just like the baby roots like the roots you can just kind of pull out and like transplant somewhere else that's kind of what I grew up in as well so there's not really a place where I can say, you know, oh, you know, well, there's a lot of places that I can say, oh, I lived there for a little bit and I lived there and like, that was nice. And like, you know, I remember that, um, but not like an actual home. So maybe that answers that question. Like grounded is like something that has to be something like physical that I can say was always there or like always something I could maybe depend on. Right, right. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And, and baby roots. I love that. That I've never <laughs> thought of that concept, but it makes a lot of sense to me as somebody who moved constantly as a child and as an adult. You mentioned going to Costa Rica and Jamaica as a kid. Uh, what were those experiences like being back with a extended family, I assume? Yes, I think I think my mom, I'm realizing now that I think my mom was someone who no one really believed should be having kids. Like, she was kind of one of those mothers that people were thinking, oh, you know, she was so wild in her teenage years, or, you know, she's such a wild card. She doesn't follow the rules. She's, you know, she kind of left the church. We grew up Seventh-day Adventist, um, Seventh-day Adventist cult. Uh, so she left that and kind of started doing her own thing with that. And so no one really as far as like in our family, which is mainly religious people, um, some Seventh-day Adventists, but just mainly just Christian. When she had like me and my sisters and would like kind of take us places and kind of show us off, it was almost like a sort of statement of like, you know, look at, you know, look at what I did and look how great my kids are in comparison to, you know, everyone else's, I guess. I didn't really get to know people as much because of that. Like, I think people were kind of just expecting her to almost fail a little bit. So we weren't as connected in in the sort of the formative years of my life. And we were kind of always like, because my mom's a lawyer as well. So 
there weren't many people that kind of understood like what it meant to be a lawyer and to have like three kids, single mother, you know, running a law firm. Like that was kind of like our our little lifestyle was kind of something they couldn't grasp. Like our our family couldn't really grasp. So in a way we kind of just kind of stuck to ourselves. Even when we did travel, we were like very like sort of tight knit. And uh I think when I visit or at least since I've visited um getting into my teenage years, I don't really spend much time visiting family. I, I'm more so like visiting for the sake of like the the environment and like how the environment makes me feel and the people in general, not really the people that are in my family, but like just the whole culture. Like I'm just trying to absorb that because um, I'm, I'm not a very family oriented person. I'm realizing I love the idea of, 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 you know, families and units and people caring for each other and stuff. But as far as my particular family, I'm like a bit, no, I, I don't have the connection or the orientation with everyone that I think would make, you know, the relationship stronger and, and things like that. But regardless, uh, I love knowing that I'm from the Caribbean and that I'm from Costa Rica and that I'm from Jamaica because it's such a powerful like feeling to know that I'm connected to the history of those places and the, and the people and to kind of know where I'm from. Like that's the most important thing to me. So. Right. Right. Of course. I totally get that. So yeah, you um, you mentioned that you grew up with a single mom, and and is that two younger sisters? Yes, yes. What was that experience like? I mean, you said your mom had a professional career, and I'm sure she was very busy. You had two siblings in your life. Um, you were the eldest. Can you talk about that and your growing up with them? Well, it was quite it was quite the roller coaster. You know, so I think a lot of kids have this like memory or this. There's like this story that I hear a lot about, oh, you know, when I was young, I got a new sibling and, you know, I didn't want a new sibling and, you know, like kind of mm-hmm. took out this anger or whatever about it. And I don't think I had any sort of feelings like that at all. I think I was the most maybe indifferent to the fact that this is happening, like that that I was getting, you know, these new siblings. So um, that was when I was four and when I was seven, when I... Uh, you know, gained two younger siblings. And then um, I think another thing about my whole sibling situation is that my mom, my mom was basically like unable to have kids for like four pregnancies. So when I happened, it was an accident and it was kind of like, oh, I can have kids. Like, this is cool. Like, this, this is great. This is wonderful. And so it was... I think even crazier when she had two more kids because at the point she was uh she was 30 39 and 45 which is like you know that time when it gets you know a lot more risky so i not at the at the time i didn't know all this but like i think we were almost like these miracles that you know we were we could kind of do no wrong we were perfect you know we got everything we wanted you know she kind of spoiled us in a way that made us feel made us feel really sort of incubated from the rest of the world like we kind of just 
got to play and got to just be, you know, three little girls. And um, there was like a really strong effort to keep us like sheltered from like sort of evils, you know, the violence of the world and all that. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's possible to just fully shield anyone from that. I think like nature is violent. <laughs> Not that people are like naturally violent, but that like, you know, sometimes life is just like, it, it, it can't, we can't be sheltered from life uh, forever. So yeah, I mean, bad things are going to happen, right? It's not because humans are inherently evil or violent, but there's a world out there. And unless you live in a, like a little literal, like, you know, bubble or biodome, like you're going to experience some of those bad things eventually. Exactly. But I will say that like a lot of things, a lot of things that my mom was worried about were things that, you know, she was very, she was very right to worry about. And because I know to worry about those same things, I, I feel that I'm in a better position in life than a lot of um, young women, honestly. Um, and like young black women, like I feel like I was sheltered from a lot and that it made me smarter. It made me smarter. Um, even, you know, even though I had to deal with naivety at certain parts, at certain times in my life, like, I do feel like I'm smarter because I had time to kind of figure out who I am. So me and my sisters, we were kind of like each other's best friends growing up. Um, and we, were, we had this thing called the sisterhood where it was like, we would tell each other like a secret and it's like, yeah, like this is just the sisterhood. Like, um, and we were like pretty young saying this. So it's like hilarious to me. And I'm thinking, I'm, I think I was probably the one who started it. Probably. Eventually, we said, well, <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah, I think I started that. Um, you know, I think spending all that time together, it it kind of makes it so now we, we're still close, but we're, not, you know, we're not as close as maybe one would expect for like, just like how, you know, in our own world we used to be. But I like, I have, I have these memories of um, just knowing that I had to like protect them and knowing that I had to like, you know, watch out for them. I guess maybe like my mom or, or my stepdad told me that, you know, this is something that, you know, I need to do. But I remember feeling like way more like of like an instinct to just like, all right, I have to like be the one to like figure this out. There was one day we got locked out of the house on our way. When we were coming home from school, we got off the bus and there was no one home and the door was locked. And, you know, it's like, what do we do? It's like, <laughs> like what's happening and we kind of all freaked out because it's like I was probably the oldest and I was um maybe like 11 or 10 or something so they weren't that or maybe no maybe I was like 10 maybe I was like 12 I don't know but my idea was to go to the neighbor's house because we knew a neighbor and you know I, I didn't know much about this neighbor but I knew it was a woman and I knew she had a she had a girl daughter and I knew that you know that was going to be better than all the other neighbors that we had never spoken to and that, you know, had men in the homes. So the story ends with us getting home and everything being fine. But when I told my mom where we went, she's like, it's like, you can't go there. She's like, never go there because that lady, you know, you know, don't just, you can't, you can't trust that lady. And I think that started like this spiral where I was like, 
women are dangerous too. Like women can be like people that like do like bad things. Like I thought that was like only men at that point. And so I was from from then I I think I just started to like question so many things about like what it you know, like who to trust in the world and like how to like figure out who's trustworthy and who is up to you know, who's up to no good or, or whatever the case is. Um did did you and your mom and your sisters have any kind of supportive relationships with neighbors or did did your mom view everyone as being a potential threat? Basically. Growing up, that's like that was the mentality was that like like we didn't sleep over other people's houses. Um we didn't like if if there was like a man in the home specifically, it was like not like we weren't gonna be in that house alone with that person or with that family or whatever. Like we had church people that we were closer with. And even in, even with that, we, my mom was extremely selective about who we could just like be, be sort of in their home, like in public spaces. I think we were like, we always got to just kind of be free and, and explore and, you know, everything is fine if she was there, but like, unsupervised like i i think i have maybe we had one neighbor that no because we are we we knew their family so it wasn't like it was just like a random neighbor it was like a family friend basically so i was like very sort of sheltered from any community like and we were in the suburbs um for most of my life uh, uh we were in some difficult neighborhoods like in my younger younger years so it's like I kind of understand kind of her viewpoint and she grew up she grew up in New York like in the 70s and 80s 60s yeah 60s 70s and 80s it was a rough time in New York yeah so she's like witnessing people like you know shooting up you know on you know on their on their porches in like on the way to school and like she's like witnessing all that as a kid. And then with us, she's like, yeah, like you guys aren't going to be on the streets. You guys aren't going to just be wandering around. You guys aren't just going to be like unsupervised, like how she got to be unsupervised growing up. So. Right. I I wonder, how do you think this um, tradition of mistrust that your mother inculcated in, in y'all, how do you think that's carried over in your life? Like this, like being instructed to not trust people like is that something you've struggled with as you've become an adult oh definitely definitely um but almost like adversely so growing up I was very trusting well my mom assumed that I was very trusting of people because you know before I even started school so like three years old four years old five years old I would run up to people and be so welcoming and I would jump in people's laps and I would say hey and you know I would you know I would just like kind of do whatever I was you know and it was always something that I think she was thinking about like okay I gotta make sure like I get that out of her like soon because I can't just have her jumping in any man's lap and getting taken advantage of and thinking that you know you can just trust anything anyone says so I think she was extra hard on it because of that (laughs) kind of like scared her just me as a kid I mean as like a teenager I you know you go through that phase where you're just like oh like my parents don't know anything like I know so much 
And so I went through a phase where I'm just like, yeah, whatever my mom is saying, like, that's not what I'm doing. And I kind of got into a lot of situations where I was getting taken advantage of and I was like kind of being a little silly and um, needing to be more uh, critical and, and skeptical of people. I just had to like relearn that myself of like, okay, like assume, I try not to assume the worst in people first. I do try, but what I, what I mainly take as like my way of living is to give somebody, to give everyone a chance to prove me wrong or prove me right. And if I'm proven right about, you know, someone, you know, maybe having an intention to, you know, manipulate or whatever the case may be, I become like a wall. Like I, then that critical sort of part of me is just always on, you know, full alert. And I, you know, I, because of that, I'm not like, I'm not in a, in a lot of like social circles. Like there may be one person that I'll say, okay, uh, well, not, not one person, but you know, in the different little circles that I am in, I, I still only sort of interact with maybe one or two people maybe in that scene or like, I, I don't find myself just in groups of people all the time um, and sort of interacting with a lot of people, you know, on a consistent basis. It's very like, I'm very selective and I'm very quick to be sort of to throw my guard up because I do, I do have a high standard for like, how I want to be treated, I think, and how I think, like, you know, I, I think um, we have to have standards and sort of stick to them or else we won't get what we want. <laughs> the few relationships that I'm in, I feel that they're at the brim of everything that I'm looking for. And it's like, you know, that's, to me, worth feeling like left out or, or whatever the case may be. Um, it's worth it to have the highest quality of, you know, relationships. Rightly so. Um, I agree. And part of the reason why I asked is because my mom was also a single mom and she also inculcated in me, for my own good, uh, a deep suspicion of everyone as, you know, that everyone has nefarious motives, everybody's dishonest. Um, because that was based on her own experience. So, I mean, it was not out of nowhere. And she was doing that to protect me, but... I've had to try to unlearn some of that as an adult because it can uh, block you off from relationships with people if you go into everything with the highest level of mistrust. I've just had to negotiate that. So that's part of the reason why I was interested in sort of what your experience was. Back to your growing up, um, you you were a caretaker for your younger sisters, right? Yes, um, and that's a, you know, there's there's so many sort of branches to this tree, but um, because my mom was running a law firm on her own, our childhood was spent uh, with either me watching over my sisters or us having a caretaker in the home or us doing aftercare programs or, you know, staying with family, things like that. We had to, like, have a lot of things that we had to work out because it's a very demanding 
job that she had. So I think I spent more time with my sisters than my mom did growing up. Like, I have that, like, there's this part of me in the back of my head that's every now and then thinks about that. Like, you know, there would be a lot of nights where we just wouldn't see her. And she was also a bit, she had a bit of trauma to deal with herself. So um, just our sort of code in the house was that we never bothered her when she was in her room, like when she was, you know, going to bed or something. Like, we never bothered her during that time. We never slept with her after a certain age. We wouldn't, there, there was just certain things that, there were certain things about like space and like proximity to her that sometimes, that, that sometimes really kind of created this like sort of, distance for lack of better words <laughs> between us um like emotionally i think as well that it, that it played a part because even though i'm my mom is a extremely loving and caring and generous person there was like the emotional space between us of like like the physical touch and the sort of being able to be close to her physically i kind of carry with me now but uh I think at a certain point, I was starting to realize, like, so basically we had a caretaker that, that was technically, like, a client of hers, or not a client of hers, but connected to something that was kind of, like, her trying to help them out as well by giving them a job and, and giving them a place to stay, I think, as well, which my mom let a lot of people stay with us growing up, people that needed help, people that needed um, just momentary she was very notorious for that and we had to at a certain point tell her hey like no one else is going to come to live with us like I don't care what they say like I had to just say that to her um in my teenage years I was like don't ever let this happen again <laughs> don't want anyone living with us um I'm, guess, just I'm, things. I'm guessing she didn't let men in the house well that's that's the contradiction there are some contradictions here because um, there were men that had that came to stay with us, and one of them was very sweet and very kind, and I have no, you know, ill words to say about them. But the other was, you know, during my senior year of high school, was uh, I think he was a junior in high school or maybe also a senior, but his his behavior was unacceptable. Uh, it's such a complicated story. At first, we were dating. And then we stopped dating almost instantly. Um, and then we were kind of just friends. But then even more so, like, because he was also Jamaican, my mom kind of felt this, like, thing of trying to help out this young guy. And it was just, like, this charity case. And he was just, like, putting on, like, the sob story for her and, like, was quite, like, he was very aware of, like, how he was kind of, like, pushing himself into this sort of arrangement. Like, he knew what he was doing. But I was so repulsed by him that I just kind of kept my eyes out for anything that he could possibly be doing that's, like, you know, unethical or not okay or inappropriate. And eventually, you know, we got him out of there. Um, it was it was when my mom realized he wasn't going to school anymore, which was, like, the terms of which he was staying with us. Mm. But... Um, there were a couple there were a couple men that came to stay with us and just even my stepfather like my stepfather 
I think she met him when I was like three or four years old. And, you know, she had my, my siblings with him and, you know, he wasn't a great guy at all. I, I think I noticed that almost instantly, but it was something that took her a very long time to figure out. And that was, that was a big thing in our relationship of is kind of coming to terms with the fact that we were put in a dangerous situation with him being in our lives. I know, I know at the heart of everything that she does, she's a caring and kind person and sees ways to help people and it can be blinded by the ways that she can help people, I think as well. So that's one thing that I made sure that like, I didn't do like, instead of like, I never wanted to be that caring. I never wanted to be that caring that people had the chance to like, pull the wool over my eyes and kind of make me feel like no matter what they do, you know, they need help. So I got to help them or, or I watched that. And I, I, I knew my stepfather was a bad guy, but I just wasn't old enough to know how to articulate that. But I had the instinct. You've, you've talked uh, before about taking care of your sisters. Um, did you feel like you had an obligation to take care of your mom too yeah I think I was very in tune to her problems at a certain point um and I think to this day I'm like I'm a little too sometimes I'm a little too in tuned to the point where I'm like forgetting that like I have to still hold her accountable for like just like the way that she affects me so it's it's definitely something that um I think I picked up on and you know, I, I watched my stepfather kind of be, it wasn't like this super sort of violent abuse, but it, but it was definitely him like using the strength of his body to stop her from exerting any strength over him. It was, you know, that dynamic. And from seeing that, I was like, oh, my mom's a victim too, I think. Like, I think that was what my brain started to formulate was that like, we were both like victims of what was happening. You know, I think my ability to to really, like, understand what she's gone through has, like, helped me to, like, see, like... I, I feel like I've I've gone through motherhood without actually having to, like, go through it. Like, I, I feel like I've seen so many different stages of what all that means. And, you know, I think it's... I think it's a very, very sacred... I think it's a sacred thing. A very sacred thing. But I don't even know if this world like I don't even think like people should be having children in this current world but I think I don't I don't think it should stop either <laughs> I think we should keep going and, and keep keep mutating see what happens I'm glad to hear that because I hear a lot of pessimism from people in general but especially younger people that no one should have kids anymore and I say this as someone who doesn't have kids and will probably never have kids, but it, you know, the, this pessimism and nihilism that like the human project is not worth continuing uh, because of climate change or because of whatever, I think is not a very good thing. I, I mean, if people want to have kids and have families, I think they should. And um, there's no ethical imperative to not have kids in my opinion. Um, but that's just one woman's opinion. <laughs> um,
so you you had your experience sort of looking after your sisters and also worrying and caring for your mom but you also had other experiences of um doing sort of care work right as a young person yes i think probably starting with feeling out outcasted with my peers i was i gravitated to to be in places where i felt like i had more value and i think i think i saw that i had value for, like taking care of you know taking care of little ones taking care of um preschools preschoolers i volunteered at preschools and i volunteered at my sabbath school or sunday school and they would have vacation bible school which is just summer bible camp we kind of got to pick where we wanted to work and and i always kind of chose to work with like the younger ones because it felt like the easiest thing and it it almost made me feel cool because you know all the other girls and boys were just interested in kind of like mixing in with each other and and kind of having having you know that that peer to peer sort of kind of interaction where it's just like yeah we're talking about boys or we're talking about stuff that we like and we're so I didn't really want to be a part of that mainly because like I said I grew up sheltered so I kind of was probably had some social things that I had to figure out as well the more I kind of just you know did the sort of volunteer work I, I, I would say to myself you know I, I know how to do this like I, I do this really well and, and I it made me feel confident and it made me feel because people would tell me as well, like, Oh, you're so good with these kids. And you know, they listen to you and I was just kind of being myself. And I I thought, Oh, well, you know, I'm good at this. And, and looking back, I I just, I'm, I'm just a silly person. I think at heart, I just, I, I don't like to be serious. I always like to bring a funny spin on everything. And, um, I look at the world very simplistically. So I think, you know, that's probably has something to do with it. But uh, you eventually, see, you, see, um, you seem like a serious person to me and you don't seem <laughs> to look at things simplistically. Um, I mean, I I feel like you might be selling yourself a little short there. I, that's 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 the contradiction. It's it's just uh, I think that's the the, the distance between maybe um, how I think and then how I act, I think are always contradicting each other because uh, it's, it's something I've people tell me all the time. They're like, like people are always saying, you know, Oh, before I knew you, I thought you were going to be a lot meaner (laughs) or something like that. Like there's always like this difference between that for me. But anyways, I felt like I kind of found what I wanted to do almost. So as much as I was always into art growing up, and people would ask, oh, what do you want to do? Because that's always something that they ask children for some reason um, is, what job do you want? <laughs> and I would always, at first I would say veterinarian. And then I would say, I want to be a teacher. And then once I got into my teenage years and I started learning more vocabulary, I would say, I want to go into early childhood education. And I started to specify, get, got to, started to get to the specifics. And people started to, I guess, catch on to that, like family friends. So I would get sort of little gigs to babysit people's kids and, and things like that. And, and it was 
it was a way to make money and I thought you know I, I didn't I didn't think much about it actually but once I started to homeschool for a family friend and really got to kind of watch these kids grow up in a very like in a way that I hadn't really sort of witnessed before you know from that perspective of, of more you know more mature view it really started to make me think about what it meant to be taking care of someone else's kids. Mm. Can, you, and, can, you, can you tell me, like, why it's different, like, babysitting an 8-year-old versus homeschooling a 16-year-old? Like, why that made you see things differently? I think there's a certain point where, at least there was a certain point for me that I felt that I wasn't able to relate, um, you know, my ideas well enough to to people that were like closer to my age at the time like I felt like it felt like I I could teach any little kid I could teach any four-year-old some shapes and and some numbers but like when it come when it came to explaining why you know these very more these more complex things these more complex ideas I didn't I, I found I found that Maybe I wasn't equipped and maybe I wasn't the person to be doing that explaining. It's something that I'm, I'm still grappling with. But um, the ages that I was homeschooling kids um, or this family was from like, so really from like, I was, I was babysitting them in, well, they were in second grade and first grade and then a little bit in third grade. But then in fourth grade was when we were homeschooling. And then after that was when I was tutoring and, and just tutoring, babysitting, and kind of just a little mix of everything. There gets there gets to be a point where things get very complex and things get very like there there becomes a need for like almost like a mediator for for information and for, for like getting or communicating things that need a lot of explaining. Um. Okay, I'm gonna stop you right there. Because this sounds very interesting. You were a tutor for kids that were being homeschooled, right? And it sounds like you were supposed to teach them some things and maybe the parents didn't like what you were teaching them? Or am I getting that wrong? <laughs> well, it's very, you're very, very close. Okay. I wasn't happy with what the parents were teaching the kids and what the kids were bringing sort of to me in like this loop of like, I was in a position where I felt I didn't either I didn't have the autonomy or I didn't want the autonomy to be a part of this dynamic of you got kids that you want me to teach and you want me to like influence. But what I'm trying to give them is contradicting to what you're giving them because I, you know, I, I grew up a little conservative. My mom as, as wild as my mom was, we still had a bit of a conservative upbringing. So maybe, you know, there was a differences in culture that made, made it so, you know, we didn't see eye to eye, but it was a upper middle class white family um, that this is happening with. So it, it's not surprising um, when I think about it, but yeah, I, I didn't feel like they were doing their job and I didn't, and because of that, I didn't feel like I could do my job. 
Was it some, was it some stuff about like evolution or science or intelligent design or something that they were wanting you to teach them or were they trying it to get was... you to teach them that like African slaves were guest workers or something in America? I mean, how crazy was it? Well, I will say that it's it was it was a lot deeper because this family friend was actually I mean she was this mother was almost best friends with my mom so. That that was the original like connection. Like my mom and this and this woman became really good friends. And later along the line, this woman gets pregnant. This woman has kids. I, you know, am their babysitter, almost, almost in a way that you would start taking care of your little cousins. But she, she's a she's a woman that I think loves and and really does appreciate the cultures of the world. And so I think in a way, when she had mixed children, she assumed that this now put her as close as she'd ever get to be able to, you know, assume that she was a part of a black family. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's looking back, there's a lot of there's a lot of implications to things that I think, you know, like. She was trying to navigate, you know, having mixed children, living in, you know, living in Atlanta, being the way she is. She's, you know, very aligned with a lot of Afrocentric things and a lot of Afrocentric culture. So um, I think once her once her children started to go to school and interact with black children that weren't exactly the kind of black children she wanted her kids to interact with, there became like this, I started to, I started to contextualize things where I'm just like, okay, I don't feel comfortable even bringing my opinion into this because like, I'm, I wasn't even, I was barely an adult at that point. Like I was trying to articulate myself, but more so I didn't feel like I could really care for these children without directly addressing and like reforming their relationship with their mother and and their mother's relationship with blackness. Like I felt like there was like this huge mountain to climb that like I didn't like, I needed like a whole like team of people to even begin to formulate the plan of action, (laughs) what to do. So she She's just she wanted to adopt this narrative of how she's a single she's a single mother and she's raising her children and she's got a deadbeat daddy and she's got you know she's got to do it all on her own and it was this narrative that started to push me away from wanting to even take care of anyone's children because no matter who it is it's it's a very serious thing to like enter someone's home and and become a part of their sort of dynamic. I don't think it should be taken lightly at all. I think it should be an extremely critical moment where if you're if you're going to make that decision to bring someone into your home and uh, allow them to sort of affect the balance. If, if there is balance in, in what you have in your home, um, you know, the, the social and the emotional and the 
you know, the physical, it's like, I, I went through so much of, of feeling uncomfortable and feeling like, uh, I only want to do this work for people who are like in my family, like people who I've accepted as family versus people who've assumed themselves like in my life. It seems to me that, um, a mountain is a good metaphor. Um, also a minefield might be another good, I mean, I guess you could have a minefield on a mountain slope, but, um, like you're in, you're in the space of a family where the mother is a white woman who's raising mixed race children. And she's trying to get you to do an Afrocentric curriculum according to what she thinks it should be or. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's trying to formulate like all these, you know, she's, she she was trying to get me involved in telling her kids to stop interacting with these other black kids basically like trying to like she's like oh they listen to you like you know you're younger like you know they they adore you and i think i think she was trying to of course protect her kids just like any mother would but right. I worry that I worry that what was really happening was that she was starting to she was starting to realize that she wasn't as equipped as she thought she was and wanted to like equip me as like the all knowing, you know, black you know the, the black whisperer. Yeah. yeah. And I just oh, God. <laughs> I just I I couldn't like I I tried but I felt I felt uncomfortable and I knew there had to be a reason why I, I just I knew there I knew there was something wrong about what was happening um and more so I knew it wasn't my place and I I I, I do feel sorry for these kids but I also I, I've I've learned that I have to not take on like everyone's problems because like if if I were to sit down and think about all the kids like in my life that I've met that I wish I could like have all this influence over in their lives, like there's so many kids that like I know deserve better. But like when someone has a child, I'm realizing that yes, it takes a village, but I think that whole that whole thing about it taking a village to me should imply that you already have that village. Not even already have that village, but it's 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 such a complicated thing for me to even try to formulate in my that's head. That's interesting. But, um, that's interesting though. You're like, it takes a village, but you can't just go on Craigslist and get a village. Like, yeah, the village is supposed to already be there. Yeah, like that's like that's a part of the process to me that people are. You know, we've we've moved away from a lot of tradition and a lot of traditional stuff in America. I think um, in some ways less than others unfortunately but uh i think like that community and that sort of like tribal um sort of like way of living it's something that i think is like ne so necessary if you want to like keep it move if you want to like grow that like if you want to like grow your tribe if you want to like make it bigger and and expand it and you know or just like keep it alive you know, having a child should be like, I think people have to like earn that right. <laughs> I, 
I wanted but, to. Uh, I wanted to just kind of um, go back to our earlier thread for yes. just a second. Based on your experiences with looking after your sisters, your mom, doing other types of care work, like as a babysitter, have you gotten to a point where you feel a certain kind of aversion to to care work? Yes. Um, unfortunately, I I feel like I never want to babysit again. Um, <laughs> I can understand that. I just, uh, I think that... It's not my job, and it's probably better that someone someone that still has, like, generosity in their heart to do it, because I don't think I have the generosity that maybe I used to have. I want to care for people in a way that makes me feel like I, that I'm making change, and I don't... I don't feel that very often um and I don't I don't know if I can raise I don't I don't know if I can talk to like kids from these generations that are coming up because I feel like I'm like sometimes I feel like some sort of like boomer or something where I'm just like get it like I don't understand they're speaking a different language that's how I feel so I look back on my work that I did um, babysitting and, and tutoring and things like that. And it's a bit bittersweet because I, I think I was doing all that stuff truly out of the, out of the kindness of my heart or out of, out of the, the sense of, you know, I see people in, in need of help and I want to help them. And um, now as much as I do want to help, in a, in a in a number of ways, I know that it puts a lot of sort of almost like a tax on me. Like it's 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 never for free. It feels like uh, it feels like I'm paying a price emotionally that I don't think is worth it. I feel like stress is like literally what ages you, and I don't want to put more stress on my body than is necessary. And I think right now, like the scales of like how much care to how much stress or like the balance that I want to strike between those two is definitely not in favor of care. It's, I mean, it's in favor of less stress basically. And the least stressful um, relationships that I have are the ones that I put the most energy into. So I think that really speaks to the aversion a little bit. And um, I I find myself being someone that a lot of people are less likely to bring their problems to because of that. And I don't I don't necessarily like that part. Um, hmm. I always want my friends to to tell me when you know, you know they have a problem. But it seems maybe that's kind of the double edge of my attitude. Sure, that makes sense. So, what kind of um, career are you um, studying or working toward now? So, right now. Um, I am working, 
as a secretary. Um, but it's technically care work because it's for my mom's law firm, which I'm kind of like, I'm the, I'm the remote kind of worker that she has. I'm kind of like the main employee or at, at one point was basically the main employee. And I've had to sort of slow down on that work while I'm trying to graduate. So I'm working as a secretary. But again, it's not a job that I really chose that I wanted. It was, it's just what I know needed to be done. So I'm just kind of doing what needs to be done. Uh, well, just just for a second, could you say why you would describe a secretary as care work? I think mainly in this context um, of like being a secretary for a lawyer, it's basically like being a personal assistant. So I... In in the day to day sort of happenings of of my job, I spend a lot of time sort of listening and being really attentive to how much stress that you know my mom is under as the lawyer and how to relieve their stress, whether it's with being productive or whether it's not being productive and listening. And, you know, stopping everything that I'm doing to focus on what their current, you know, conflict is, whether it's work-related or personal or whatever. Um, I think lawyers get pretty stressed out on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, the stakes are pretty high. Most times we're dealing with people right. getting separate families and um, people whose lives are on the line, basically. So livelihoods, things like that. So... Well, this was a question that I didn't quite expect to come into it um, in our discussion, but what is your experience of time in this uh, role as a secretary for your mom's law firm or for your mom? Like, you know, are you busy like all the time or is there like long, like are there lulls and then there's like times of intense activity? Um, what like... The, I don't know how much, how many hours you work a week or like what portion of your life is taken up by this, but like, I was wondering if you could say something about like, you know, I'm, I'm the reason why I asked is like, if somebody's a home health aide or somebody's a babysitter or somebody's a nurse or somebody's a social worker, their experience of time and their job is very different, um, mm-hmm. d- dependent on the specific circumstances, right? And so, I mean, I think I've been thinking about this through this whole series of like how people experience just the to use a 10 cent word like phenomenological like the like experience of the time and what it's like for you to be doing that job is it like busy all the time or is it like punctuated by like certain moments of activity how would you describe that yes um what that makes me think of initially is like for a lawyer like you don't really have any days off Mm. um your days off you're still getting emails. You're most of the time lawyers have their calls coming to their personal phones as well. Some are good about it. Um, but if you're in the position that my mom is in where she doesn't, she doesn't want to, she's trying to like sort of save money, like single mom law firm kind of energy. Um, so she's got a lot of calls coming to her, you know, coming to, uh, whether to her phone or to her email and, you know, clients are texting her at different times of the day and night. And so it's kind of like a never ending sort of cycle, uh, unless 
she puts in so much effort to sometimes just not hear anything about about the job but it's kind of like always in your head um as a secretary her right hand person it feels like when i'm like working with her time more so really slows down when we're kind of working on something um, most of the time it has to do with paperwork it's it's very detailed specific sort of um formatting and and language that we have to use Okay, so new question. Um, what kind of career do you see yourself working toward now? That is a very, very, it's an interesting question because I think it puts a funny spin on things. Um, my answer, uh, <laughs> getting into theater uh, at Georgia State, I've been taking a lot of directing and acting classes and um theater and performance theory and a, t a ton of things related to just the whole performance and theater world. And um, my degree is in performance. Basically, it's an acting, interdisciplinary acting degree. I see myself drawing very near to like the position of being a director because I've seen like some really bad directing and it's just... I mean, it's, to me, it's a crime to, to you know, say you're a director and not know how to, you know, really do the job. I, I think a lot of people are very, I think a lot of actors feel like they can direct because they've been directed. Right. But, you know, I, but I don't really see, I see a lot of, like, failed attempts and a, a lot of things that, to me, are very clear that, aren't clear to others and so I've been wanting to direct and I've been directing some I've directed some short films and um I've always done my own creative direction for performances and stuff that I do but just dealing with actors and, and specifically theater actors I feel like I understand you know what they need to to do their job and how directors can get in the way so it's just so painful to watch and it makes me just want to do it myself to show people <laughs> how it's done um but directing is in my opinion very much so care work and very and it's definitely all about how much you care about the, the script the actors the the theater itself the how much you care about you know the message and and it's there's there so many ways to be negligent um in that way so how how do you um how do you think your experience like dealing with children uh relates to your ability to deal with actors <laughs> that's a good question that's a good question there i've i've been um a part of a a run for a, a play here at Georgia State and I've been backstage and everything and I find myself referring to my actors, referring to the actors as my babies. Um, <laughs> I think there's some connection to it. I think there's, I think there's something about how it's not that they're needy, but it's that if you're, 
if you're in the position of an actor, you are dependent on everything else to be able to do your job. So, of course, an actor can get on stage and read their lines and do their thing, but they have to be directed in the right way. They have to know what they can do and they have to feel supported and they have to feel like if they, you know, start taking their steps that you're going to be there to, you know, if they fall, you know, they want to know that you're going to be there. So it's, it's like the process of, of, of casting and, re and rehearsing and performing a show is, is a, it's a creation that um, starts with people not really knowing anything and someone that has to be there to facilitate how everyone gets to know what they need to know in the same way that a mother has to kind of be there to make sure a kid kind of knows what they need to know to sort of go through the world. So, you know, I think in that primal way, yeah. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a relationship of trust. Ooh. Yes. Yes. The way a kid, the way a kid is supposed to trust their parent or like the way an actor needs to think that the director is is understanding them and is in control of the situation and all the thousand variables that are involved in filming a production like this idea that you can trust someone um seems really central yeah exactly and what i've seen is that the actors i mean i'm sure there are some actors who they have uh their reservations and and in getting into a project they might say oh well you know I don't trust this director or I don't, you know, I'm sure every act actor has a little bit of mistrust, but I do see that, especially in like, you know, college theater, high school theater, these kids don't have as much experience as let's say an, an adult experience um, theater actor may have. So they're looking more than they're looking for direction. Like, specifically in these spaces and so what i'm seeing is there's this great deal of trust that the actors have to give to a director um whether they like it or not because in that way actors are just like they're they're like i said they're i feel like they're kind of dependent on the whole the whole process to be able to do what they need to do Thank you so much to Adia Reed for speaking with us in this episode. Um, she offered such great insights um, into like some really profound and serious challenges that she's grappled with and I think many people grapple with. We had to cut our interview a little bit short because of some technical difficulties, but um, I appreciate her so much like spending her time and talking with us about this stuff. Now listening to the show, I probably not that uh, non-obvious that this is not meant to be a super like entertaining podcast show that's trying to get like a million followers or listeners or something. That's really not what we're doing. This is really meant to be oral history. And so, you know, um, we try to give the fullest picture we can within reason. I mean, you know, we edit out some ums and ahs and silences, but we really try to provide the audio um, of these conversations with 
really interesting people. And I think every single person who's spent time like contributing to this so far, um, this, this podcast, The Tactile World, um, you can follow us at tropicsofmeta.com and also on SoundCloud, where, the, where this series of podcast episodes is hosted. Um, the podcast was produced by Tropics of Meta and New Romantic Robots Productions. Our theme music is by Tender Pony and Fat LX. And um, I'm your host, Alex Safe Cummings. And I appreciate you very much. And, you know, if you can help someone today, just do what you can. It's, it's good enough. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye.